blessed to have great musos here, aren't we? Let's, let's give them a hand. In, in case you don't know, these guys are here every single week practicing, uh, making our worship sound amazing, uh, and we're grateful for them. All right. Continuing on with dreams. Sorry, was I too Aussie there? All right. <laughs> Continuing on with dreams. And I was thinking about this and, and how to go about this, and I, and I came to a thought of reverse engineering. And reverse engineering, something if you don't know, is what, what they do is they take a completed product. Uh, they take it, they pull it apart, they find out the components that make this product up, they find out how they're all put together, and then they're able to build it themselves. And so this happens a lot with the military. If the enemy's got something they think is good, they, they steal it and, and reverse engineer it. Happens with technology. Uh, and you know, generally these two things. I found some great examples, both of them in World War II. The Allies loved the uh, German fuel uh, ca tank carriers that they had. You know, they put their petrol in. Uh, and so they stole one of these, reverse engineered it, found out exactly how this thing worked, and then made their own. And that's why we call them jerry cans, because the Germans were the jerrys. And, so and, and so this was this great thing the Allies made. The Germans said, forget about fuel tanks, we're going to steal one of their bazookas, and we're going to reverse engineer one of those, and they built a better bazooka. So I think the Germans probably did the better reverse engineering, but still lost the war. So anyway, don't mention the war, so we won't talk about that. And so tonight, when I was thinking about dreams, I thought, well, because people say, well, I don't know what my dream is, or I'm not sure how to get to a place where I know what it is God would have me do. So we're going to deconstruct a dream tonight and reverse engineer a dream that you would be able to see some components of uh, a man by the name of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in the Bible, so if you, want, if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah. We're going to go through a lot of the book of Nehemiah tonight. We're going to see just five uh, keys that Nehemiah had that brought his dream to fulfillment. And hopefully through that, you'll be able to get some insight for your own dreams. Let's look firstly then at a dream is a result of passion. Nehemiah 1, 1 to 4. It says, it came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept, mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let me give you some context here. 150 years before Nehemiah, there was a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he was not a Jew. He came in and he destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took the, uh, the Jewish people captive, uh, and this was called the exile. They were, they, they were taken out of their nation uh, and they were placed uh, all around the Middle East in Persia. This is why you find Daniel in a foreign land through the book of Daniel. He was part of these people who were taken captive. Now, after King Nebuchadnezzar died, another king by the name of Cyrus rose to power. And Cyrus, uh, he was a little bit more tolerant of different religions. 
And so for the Jewish people, he said, okay, that's fine. You want to worship your God, that's okay. You can do that. And he allowed them to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to continue uh, their, their temple worship and everything else that was associated there. And so they all began to leave all areas of Persia, all the Middle East, and they go back to Jerusalem. And this is where we find what's happening here in, in our account tonight, that some people come to Nehemiah. Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem. He was in a city of Persia. He was uh, a servant to a king. He was the king's cupbearer. Uh, and basically this means he tasted the wine before he gave it to the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned, uh, which sounds like a pretty menial job, but it actually would have given him some sort of authority and position like a royal advisor. And so he had a pretty good life there, but his friends come to him and the first thing he does is say, What's happening with the people in Jerusalem? And he had a heart for the nation of, of Israel. He had a heart for the Jewish people. He wanted to know about them. And his heart broke with the plight of when he heard that things are bad. Things aren't going well. And it, and it really disturbed him. And this was conviction rather than emotion. And Pastor Sam, I think it was last week, said that dreams come from conviction, not emotion. And this wasn't an emotional response. This was the first thing he asked. What's happening in Jerusalem? I want to know. And when he heard that, this, this thing really broke his heart. And many times dreams will start with something that breaks your heart. What is it that you see in society that breaks your heart? Maybe it's homelessness. Maybe it's youth suicide or youth unemployment. Maybe it's lack of Christian voices in politics. Maybe it's uh, you know, the, the condition that people live in in the third world. It, it may be a number of issues that break your heart. Pastor Lee Ramsey, who's the senior pastor at Carindale, went to Cambodia and saw human trafficking and young girls uh, you know, being abused and it broke her heart. And so she started the She Rescue program. And that dream started with a broken heart, started with some passion. And they're generally a social justice issues, and the dominant theme throughout Nehemiah's life is, is social justice and, uh, and all that he does through there. Uh, but there is another element to uh, having a passionate heart, and that is what excites you. What is it that you do in life that really gets you excited? So I work in the construction industry, and so I'm going to go to work tomorrow, Monday morning, and I guarantee you that I'll say to someone, how, how, was, you know, how was your weekend? How's everything going? And they'll say, I'm living the dream. And they're not saying I'm living the dream like I am living the dream. They're saying it sarcastically. Yeah, I'm living the dream back at work, Monday morning. Weekend was too short. Another week. In paradise, another day in paradise, Doug, that's what they say, isn't it? Another day in paradise, Doug's a trader. He knows the language. And oftentimes people just go through life and they don't do what excites them. But you find something that excites you and you will be living the dream. So what is it that excites you? And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It might be hard work, but there's a passion for it. And so maybe like it's, it's music and you uh, hear the great worship up here and that just excites you and you want to be a part of that. Maybe it's uh, giving and you just, you'd love giving. 
and that really excites you to be able to give to the giving tree or these different things that come up or even just in our regular service, you just love to give. Maybe it's business that at the end of the month you love doing the P&Ls and, and doing all your numbers and that really excites you. Or maybe it's prayer, you love praying for people or you love helping people or you love working with young people. I was talking to someone today who's a carer and they were telling me about uh, this young person that they've been helping and caring for and just how you know, exciting it is to see this young person making steps of growth in their life. And they're passionate about it. And your dream is a result of your passion. But secondly, dreams require action. It's great to have a passion, but you're going to have to do something with it. And you find this throughout the Bible. You have uh, people who take drastic action. Someone like Abraham, he is, here he is in his 70s, and God gives him this amazing dream that he is going to be a blessing. He's going to be blessed. But what he has to do is leave his home, leave everything, and go and just wander until God tells him to stop. And he does that. You have someone like Moses who is told that he is going to set God's people free. But he has to go and approach Pharaoh. You have someone like David and the great dream that, uh, you know, that God is going to show himself. The God of power. But he has to go and kill Goliath. You have Joshua who has this incredible dream set before him of going into the promised land. Of a land flowing with milk and honey. But he has to march around Jericho. You have a Paul who has an incredible dream that the gospel is going to go into all of the world. But he has to go and spend his whole life, years traveling, walking dusty roads to see a dream fulfilled. Because dreams require action. And it's so easy to speak of a dream which will become nothing more than a daydream. It's so easy to say, this is my dream. And speak about it and think about it and hope for it. John Lennon wrote a song, Imagine, and in that he says, You know, uh, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope one day you will join me. I hope one day my dream will happen. And people live their lives like that. One day I hope my dream will happen. And in doing and, and that's all it is for you. I hope. One day, and you do, you do nothing about it. Because a dream is amazing. Passion is great. But it needs action to make it happen. And that might mean taking a risk. Nehemiah took a risk, Nehemiah 2, 1 to 5. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King uh, Adataxeres, that when the wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I'd never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, and I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lays waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, Well, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I might rebuild it. 
He takes a risk and uh, he's not allowed to be sad in front of the king. In fact, he could face death for being sad in front of the king. This was a serious thing to do. You always had to be happy, put on a smile, pretend that life was all sunshine and lollipops in front of the king because he just loved people to be happy. But Nehemiah here took a risk. The dream that was inside him was far, far outweighed the risk that he was going to take. And you might have to take a risk. You might have to quit your job to start a business to fulfill your dream. And that's risky. You might have to put yourself out there or even do something publicly to fulfill your dream. You might have to say goodbye to some elements of your comfortable life, just like Nehemiah did. He knew it was going to be hard work. It was a four-month journey from where he was to Jerusalem. A four-month walk. So he knew he had that ahead of him. Then he had to rebuild a city. Then he had to, uh, you know, try and get broken people together. He had to give up his life in the palace, the luxury, the servants, the nice food. And you might have to get a little bit uncomfortable for your dream to become reality. You might have to try and fit study into your life and come home after a full day's work and try and do some assignments with screaming kids in the background. I don't know what that's like, but you might have to do that. (laughs) Or even make study your full time and just say, I just have to put everything into this. You might have to move to a third world country. You might have to live on a reduced salary. But you might have to take a risk in order for your dream to become a reality because dreams aren't always comfortable and you need to do something about them. Stop saying, one day I hope and start saying, today I will. Make your dream a reality. And dreams, thirdly, dreams involve others. You're never going to achieve your dream on your own. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. We need others. Elijah needed Elisha. Even Jesus needed the disciples. Without the disciples, the gospel wouldn't have gone into the whole world. We need others, and we need to get other people on board. Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18, Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. They set their hands to this good work. Here's Nehemiah saying to the people, this is what we've got to do. And then chapter 3, if you read chapter 3, it's a pretty boring chapter because it's just a list of names of people who got involved and began to set their hand to the work that Nehemiah laid before them Because dreams are going to involve other people and dreams are going to inspire other people. As you set forth your dream and this is what God's put upon my heart, other people will be inspired by that and want to get involved with that. And he was able to rally people to the cause. We have uh, great men who set forth great visions like Martin Luther King who gave his I have a dream speech. And he was able to inspire people to set aside racial prejudice that uh, they could put aside their differences and work together as one people. You have the great speech of John F. Kennedy who uh, talked about going to the moon. He said, we're going to go to the moon by the end of this decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And uh, as you see him in that speech, there's a, there's a, a stadium 
of NASA nerds cheering. They're, they're just so excited. He said, we're going to use materials that aren't even invented yet. We're going to uh, you know, have this rocket that needs all this power, and we have no idea how we're going to do it, but we're going to get there. And these people are so excited, and they made it. Unless you believe some parts of the internet, but they made it. <laughs> and Nehemiah was able to rebuild the whole walls around the city in 52 days. An absolute miracle. And he couldn't have done that on his own. He needed to other people there. He needed to inspire them. And he also needed God. And right from the very start, Nehemiah gets God involved in his dream. You see there in the opening chapter, uh, it's the month of Chislev, which is December. But he doesn't go to the king and be sad in front of the king until the month of Nisan, which is April. So there's four months that he's praying, he's fasting, he's believing God, he's waiting upon God, he's hearing from God. And so you don't have to rush into your dream, but you have to make sure God's on board. And he takes four months to get a hold of God. And throughout the book of Nehemiah, there is constant reference to him praying, to him telling the people, God's with us. This is what God's put upon my heart. God is going to prosper us. It's okay. Don't worry. God's on our side. And you're going to have to get God involved in what you're doing. He is going to have to shape your dream. He is going to have to protect your dream. Because fourthly, dreams will be opposed. And from the moment Nehemiah begins to build, he faces opposition. Nehemiah 4, 7 and 8. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed. They became very angry. All of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. There's something about building a dream that brings criticism. And people will say really nice, well-meaning things like, that's a great idea but why don't you do something a little bit less adventurous? Do you have a backup plan? I know you want to build a big influential church on the peninsula of Pastor Sam, but it's the peninsula, there's a lot of churches around, it's not really the area for a big church, so maybe you need to set your bar a little lower. Has anyone ever said that to you? Oh, Carolina laughed, <laughs> maybe they have. <laughs> There's a lot of businesses doing what you're going to do and I'm not sure if you're going to be a success so maybe you should just really consider if this is what you want to do with your life. And they're probably well-meaning but they're very critical of the dream. And anytime you want to build something and do something and fulfill a dream, there's always going to be voices of opposition, always. And the enemies of God ridiculed the plans of Nehemiah. They even got other people uh, on board with this. And, uh, and it's, it's not easy to face criticism. It's really not. You know, and you, know, you tell people your dream and you're waiting for them to say, Wow, that's so good. What can I do to help? But rather they say, Really? You want to do that? Okay. If you want. I don't know if I would do that, but hey, that's great that you want it. <laughs> and you can have a whole crowd of people on your side, but there's always going to be a handful 
that are against it can take away your confidence. And anyone that's done anything great from God knows what, it, knows what it's like to hear those voices in your head. And it's even more so today. With the, you know, People can just get online and say all sorts of nasty stuff, just completely anonymous, and tear down what you want to do. But Nehemiah had a way to combat opposition. If you're facing opposition to your dream, you need to look at Nehemiah 2, verse 20, that says, I answered them. This is those that are opposing him. And I said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. He didn't give them really the time of day. He didn't try and enter into a dialogue with them and say, well, uh, you know, let's look at the pros and cons of what we're doing. And he just said, you know what? This is, this is God's dream. It's not mine. God told me to do this. God's going to prosper us. We're going to do this. Uh, and we're doing it with or without you. And for those that are opposing you, uh, you need to go back to the source of your dream and say, God has given me this dream and God is going to prosper me. And God is going to do something miraculous here uh, in this situation. And there can be voices against me, but God is for me. And have a firm conviction about what you're doing. This is why your dream isn't out of emotion, it's out of conviction. That when the opposition comes, you have that firm foundation to say, I know that what I'm doing is from God. Lastly, dreams keep you captivated. Dreams are many times a lifelong pursuit, but at the very least, they are always long-term goals. And the problem with long-term goals many times is finding the continued motivation that we need to, to just keep going. Because there's always going to be ups and downs in anything that you do. Even if God is on your side, there's going to be valleys. And you need to find continued motivation. And something just really interested me at the very end in the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 13 verse 6, this is the first part of the verse that says, but doing all of this I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Ataxeres, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. He'd gone back, he'd left Jerusalem and gone back to the palace. And it made me wonder, why would he do that? Why would he leave Jerusalem, spend four months walking back to the palace, go back after 12 years of being there? Maybe he thought, my work's done. The walls had been rebuilt. He had changed the social fabric of society. If you read through Nehemiah, he was able to uh, encourage them to uh, begin to follow the laws that God had put in place for, giving, for loans and for slavery and for different things. He had established the reading of the law in front of all the people. They all repented of not following the law and then began to uh, follow the law. And so maybe after all of that, he sat back and, and looked and said, well, there's nothing really left to do. And he goes back to the palace after 12 years, and I'm sure that he had a very romanticized image of what the palace was going to be, because he'd just done 12 hard years in a pretty rough environment, and in that time, he probably had created the palace to be something more than what it was, 
And the reality was obviously that it wasn't what he hoped for because you see the second part of Nehemiah 13, 6 that said, then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. <laughs> A few days later, I'm out. I'm going back. Because I wonder if when he got to the palace that the food didn't taste quite as good as what he thought it was going to be. The bed wasn't quite as comfortable as what he had dreamed of. The conversation seemed now just banal and first world problems. It wasn't what he expected. It wasn't what he'd hoped for. And he has to go back. And the great thing is when you read through the rest of chapter 13, he goes back and he finds there is so much more for him to do. So much more for him to do. Belinda and I have been married for over 13 years now and, and in all of that time we've been involved in various forms of ministry. Whether that's, you know, we've pastored, we've assisted, we've uh, helped people. This is just what we've done our, our entire lives. But a few years ago, we just went through a really bad place. And we're in a bad environment and... Uh, we sort of laid some things down and said, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. And a lot of my convictions and foundations were really shaken and, uh, and I just wasn't sure what to do. We ended up through circumstance being here about two and a half years ago, coming to City Point. And when we came through the doors, I said to Belinda, well, it was before we came through the doors, I said to Belinda, we're not doing anything in this church. You see how this ends. We're not doing anything. We're going to turn up late. Third song. We're turning up third song. I know why you turn up in the third song. Turning up in the third song. We're leaving during the fast song at the end. We're going to smile politely at people. But we're not going to talk to anyone. We're not going to be friends with anyone. And I am never, ever, ever, ever getting on a stage. Again. I'm done. And then we came to church, and we did that for a little while. But things just didn't quite feel the same. And we'd gone back to the palace thinking that this is going to be relaxing, this is going to be great, no problems, no people to deal with, just turn up, smile, go home, live our lives. But it wasn't quite what we thought it was going to be. And then we found ourselves doing crazy things. And saying insane things, like me going up to Pastor Sam saying, I'll run a life group. What am I saying? Don't. As the words were coming out of my why? Don't. And then Belinda thought, I think I'll go to, to Creative on a Tuesday night and, and join, join the band. And I remember the first, I think it was the first soul night you guys ever did here at Redcliffe. We were in the car, in the car park saying, are we going to go in? Like, do we really want to do this? You know what this means. And we walked in the door. And we began to realize that this is just what we do. This is just who we are. And trying to live in the palace. 
and with, with all sorts of reasons of saying, well, our work is done and we've put in so much effort and we've helped so many people and, uh, you know, all these sacrifices that we've made and we had every excuse that we could have to, to just go back to the palace. But it wasn't what we thought it was going to be. And I wonder tonight if you're here and you're, you're back in the palace. And there's been a dream somewhere along your life and you've put it on the shelf and for whatever justifiable reasons you have, you've had it on the shelf and you've said, that's there, it's going to stay there. I'm not having anything to do with that anymore. I'm just going to live the life that I want to live and you battle with it often because you know it's there and it just doesn't quite feel right and there's this nagging voice in the back of your mind. Can I tell you what my prayer for you tonight is? That God would make you so uncomfortable. With no apologies, I have that. That God would make you uncomfortable. That God would stir you. Or maybe you have a dream and you're saying, one day I hope, one day I hope, one day maybe. It's the same prayer for you too. That God make them uncomfortable. That in your mind, you would never be settled, you would never be satisfied, you would never taste fulfillment until you'd say, okay, I'll do it. And it might be uncomfortable, it might be risky, it might be hard work, but it's the dream that God has put into you. And it's the dream that God wants you to fulfill. And can you take the life of Nehemiah as an example to say, get involved in what your conviction is and run with it. And you'll see God do amazing things. Don't put it on the shelf. Don't say, well, I'm too old for that. I've done that. Other people will do it. No, you need to do it because it's the dream God put in you. Only you can do it. God, make them uncomfortable tonight. Can we have every head bowed, every eye closed? We want to pray.